In today's episode, I speak with pastor and author Dominic Doan about what is the soul and how can you have a soul that flourishes. Dominic lives in Colorado Springs, where he leads a ministry called Pursuing Faith. You can check them out at pursuingfaith.org. He's the author of two very popular and very helpful books, which he will talk about more in this episode, and I'll put links to those books in the show notes. Really recommend that you check those out. They've been a blessing to me personally. Dominic regularly speaks on the topics of doubt and deconstruction, and in his latest book, he's talking about the soul and how your soul can flourish. Dominic and I will both be speaking at the CGN International Conference this year for Calvary Global Network in Costa Mesa, California. That is happening June 26th through 29th of 2022. And you can find more information about it at conference.calvarychapel.com. So check that out. It's open to anyone who's interested. It's a ministry conference, and we'd love to have you join us for that. So in this episode, we talk about the theology of the soul, and we talk about a theology of flourishing and what God's vision is for you, kind of from a biblical theology perspective, how your soul can flourish, what is God's big plan for your life, and how can you walk in that? What are some of the gifts and tools that he has given you to do that? I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and I'll be back at the end with a few closing words. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I'm joined today by Pastor Dominic Doan. Hey, Dominic. Hey, Nick. We're here in Longmont, Colorado today. Excited to have you and excited to introduce you to our listeners. Absolutely. We've lived out here in Colorado for about seven, eight months or so. Prior to this, I was in Portland, Oregon, pastoring a church. Prior to that, we were in North Carolina for a year, in Oxford for a few years, and then in Maui, Hawaii for eight. And so we've been all over, but this has been home for us over the last eight months and love it so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And so tell us about your ministry that you're doing. So you were pastoring a church. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing now? Yeah. So we pastored a church called Westside in Portland. And about two, three years ago, this vision, this dream for a ministry was born. Long story short, there are lots of conversations and prayer, seeking counsel. We decided the time was right about a year ago to plant and start this ministry called Pursuing Faith. And just like the name, the whole intention, the vision, the dream of the ministry is to help people grow in their faith, especially when they're going through seasons of doubt or struggle or deconstruction, which is a thing right now in our country. The stats on deconstruction, the amount of young people especially who are leaving Christian spaces, who are wrestling with their faith, who are embracing deconstructionism is, is an all-time high. And so this ministry is to help serve people, walk with people through those seasons, and to lead them towards a flourishing faith. And what kind of results have you seen from that? Yes, it's been an amazing time. Not a day goes by where we're not hearing from people who are being impacted or are reaching out just for advice, for counsel, who are looking for practical steps to not only deal with doubt, but also what lies on the other side of doubt. So my first book was dealing with that apologetic space on here's some specific things that we wrestle through that are fueling the, this deconstruction movement. The, the next book is more on the positive side, like here's how our faith can flourish, here's how our faith can grow. And I think that's an important conversation right now because uh, deconstruction inevitably leads you to a space and we need to know what to do once we've gone through that season of doubt, or even better, to retro uh, or proactively, I should say, prepare our soul 
before the doubt comes, before the deconstruction comes. And so that's what this next book that just came out is all about. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that next book too. And I want to hear more about it. But did you write that book over the last eight months you've been in Colorado or was it something that you had already begun? It's It was an idea I've had for some time. Looking at the, the whole concept of spiritual formation and growth and flourishing has is, is always been an interest for me, especially as a pastor. And that's what we're doing. We're helping people grow in their faith. Uh, so it's an idea I've had for, I don't know, a decade or so. But I'd say the last couple of years is when there's some flesh and blood added to the, the bones. And yeah, the majority of it, I would say, was written while I was out here. Certainly the editing portion, which is that is a thing that, that takes a while. But it was about probably exactly a year ago when I first just actually sat down, started to write out some of the chapters, and then it just began to evolve and grow from there. Yeah. So what's it been like no longer pastoring a church in the sense of having the obligations of the staff and preaching every Sunday, but I know you're still very busy. So how has that been different? What have been some of the best parts of it? What are the things you miss? Yeah, that's a good question. So in this ministry, I guess my is pastor of pursuing faith. So I don't feel like the pastoring part has, has really changed much. As I mentioned, like we're walking with people, discipling people, talking to people, mentoring people. And then typically on any given Sunday, we're somewhere in the country speaking. And so in that regard, it doesn't feel like it's changed. Uh, A lot more flights, that's been a change. And then, yeah, the behind the scenes stuff, it's it's a lot of work running a nonprofit. So I feel like the admin stuff is still there. The email stuff is still there. Obviously, there are some changes, like when you're with a church year after year, that's just a different dynamic. We've really enjoyed this season. We spent a little over 20 years pastoring churches from Hawaii to North Carolina to Portland. And it was a beautiful season. And maybe it's something we'll go back to at some point. But for now, we're just like in, in that sweet spot where God has us. Yeah. Do you miss the sermon preparation and that kind of, I, I don't want to say it's like a anxiety or fear, but there is a little bit of it, right? You have a deadline and right. you have to <laughs> have a new message yeah. every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I, Yes and no. So again, I th- we're in such a different place now, uh, culturally, technologically, where you know I'm producing content, whether it's video stuff or podcast stuff, messages that we're preparing. We just put we're putting on a video series in this next week. So I, I feel like there's still the content preparation, and of course, writing is a form of that. So I, I yeah, I, I don't think that has changed too much. Although, like when you're a full-time pastor in a place and you're walking through entire books of the Bible, that that is fun. I I love that, and and yet what we're doing too is just it's it looks different. But I, I would say for us, it's just been a beautiful season. That's great. So glad to hear it. So please tell us about your new book. Yeah. So the name of the book is called Your Longing Has a Name. The subtitle is Come Alive to the Story You Were Made For. And this is a book that was really born out of what we've walked through over the last few years as a culture, as a nation, and as individuals. And this has been <laughs> a fascinating season for the world. Pandemic, financial issues, people struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, the list goes on. The New York Times, they, they put out an article a few months ago that really caught my eye, where they said the kind of the, the ethos of this moment is languishing. We're languishing as a culture. Mm. We're languishing as a people. 
And you've seen that as a pastor. I've certainly seen that. How many people, their their souls are hurt. And you just look at the stats. It's heartbreaking. 75% of Americans say that they're overwhelmed by stress. Uh, 72% say they're exhausted. 67, so two-thirds of all Americans say they're lonely. And 48% feel hopeless. These are tragic, heartbreaking, difficult stats. And in so many conversations I've had with people over the last, especially year or two, the word that I hear so often is, I'm exhausted, mm -hmm. I'm tired, I'm languishing, right? As the New York Times put it. And so what, what I do in this book is I, I, I talk about how really the issue is struggle with our soul. Thomas More, he's a, a spiritual writer. He said the great malady of the modern age is loss of soul. And this is a conversation we're having in churches, but it's also a conversation we're having in culture at large. People are identifying there's something wrong here that's more than just a pandemic. There's something wrong here that more than just the political upheaval we're witnessing or the rise of inflation, et cetera, et cetera. There's a deeper issue, and it's an issue of the soul. Uh, Jesus said, what is a profit of man if he gains the world but loses his soul? And so this led me to do some research over the last few years on what is the soul? What does the Bible say about it? And an interesting question is, what is God's vision for our soul? And what my studies led me to was a understanding from Genesis to Revelation that God has a specific vision, intention for our soul, and that is flourishing. And this word flourishing has some interesting cultural connotations. We can talk about that if you want. But in Scripture, the vision, the understanding of this concept to me was just so eye-opening, enough that it made me want to sit down and write a book, which led me to this passage in 2 Peter 1, where Peter laid roadmap. I call them gifts, these seven beautiful gifts that God has given us for the flourishing of our soul. And so what I do in the book is the, the, the seven last chapters, I unpack each of those and show how they lead towards a flourishing life, as the Bible describes it. Yeah, could you just tell us a few of those? Uh, that yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. So I think a good place probably to begin the conversation would be, what is the soul, right? Because there's all kinds of, again, cultural misunderstandings of the word. Like people use the word soul to describe leadership, like he's the heart and soul of a team, or ethics. If someone's a bad person, we'll say they have no soul. Yeah. Or food, like in and out is my soul burger. We use soul to describe all these different things. And yet in, in the Bible, soul is this beautiful, rich, animated uh, word that is so compelling and, and it's so broad, actually. Probably the most cultural misunderstanding of soul is just the invisible part of you that lives while your physical body dies, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? Super weird. Yeah, it's a weird say. prayer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to talk about that tomorrow. Yeah, we wonder why our kids need counseling, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you might you, die. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So if we were to go out in the streets of Denver and say, hey, what is the soul? Probably 80% of people would be like, oh yeah, soul is like this weird nebulous part of you that will keep on existing when you're dead. But the, beyond that, and it's a very platonic mm -hmm. understanding of it. Or if you've seen the movie Soul that came out last year, that Pixar film, it kind of it, it reflects that idea. Mm -hmm. But in scripture, soul is this Hebrew word nefesh, and it's defined as the entirety of who you are. It's not simply just this part of you that's what we would say spiritual. Soul actually includes your physicality, your emotions, 
your body, your thought life, your past, present, future, like your soul, your nefesh, from a Hebrew perspective, the entirety of who you are. Your nefesh really shapes the outcome of your life. Um, so if your soul, if your nefesh is healthy, then nothing you go through can really break you. But if your soul, your nefesh is unhealthy, then nothing you go through can heal you. The health of your soul shapes the outcome of your life. And this word nefesh is found hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. And then extending into the, the New Testament where Jesus would talk about it as well. Um, that's why he said, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, you will find rest for your soul. Our soul came to be through the breath, through the presence of God. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it's the first mention of soul in the Bible. And it says, God breathed on Adam and Eve, and they became a living nefesh. They became a living soul. Uh, so they weren't just matter or electrons or atoms. There, there's something deeper to what it means to be human than our physicality. There's a soul to us that encompasses that. And that word living is, is a beautiful word. It's actually the word flourishing. They became a flourishing soul. It, it's this Hebrew idiom of a flower that's blossoming with color and vibrancy and, and beauty. So God's vision for Adam and Eve from the very beginning was, was their flourishing. And then this extends all throughout the Old Testament with words like shalom, which means flourishing, or tamim, or ashray, another beautiful word, blessed, which also means flourishing. And you, you see it described primarily through the image of trees. So I have a tree on the cover of the book. In the book of Genesis, there's this parallel between the creation of Adam and the creation of trees and very similar language being fruitful and multiplying and fruit and all, all of these terms that is used of humanity and trees. And then going through scripture, you see this imagery over and over again that we're to flourish like a tree. Someone is probably the most famous. The one who is blessed, the word ashray there, is the one who's rooted and planted in scripture, in God's presence. The roots go down and whatever they do flourishes, it, it prospers. Now, here's an interesting thing. Jesus used a, a form of the word blessed in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, uh, blessed are the merciful. The word blessed, a markurion in the Greek, connected to this idea of flourishing in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying flourishing are the peacemakers, flourishing are the merciful, flourishing are the pure in heart. And to me, it was such a beautiful vision that, that Jesus is showing us for our soul, for our nefesh. And then, of course, in Revelation, we see a recreation of Eden, in a sense. We see the river, we see the tree, we see the, the flourishing of the nations, the healing of the nations through the fruit. And, and so what I do in this book, especially in chapter two, is I lay this out and say, this is God's vision for our lives. It's for our soul to flourish. So you can see here there's a tension because we're living in a moment where New York Times, we're languishing. You look at the stats, people are hurting right now. And yet God's vision for us is one of thriving, blossoming, beauty, flourishing, the abundant life that Jesus spoke of in, in John when he said, come to me and out of your innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. And to me, this raises a really interesting question. Okay, we see the reality of our hurt, our languish as a culture, and yet we see Jesus' compelling vision for beauty and human flourishing. 
what does that look like? Now, culture understands the innate need for human flourishing. And this is a question as old as time, right? Aristotle, and he had this whole concept of eudomenia, by which he meant happiness or flourishing. And he connected human flourishing to the virtues, but he had a very legalistic system around that, a very prejudiced system in, in many ways in the Greco-Roman world, where the flourishing life was often connected to your status, your wealth, your philosophy, and it was very stratified. In the Bible, though, it defines human flourishing not simply as happiness or your external circumstance, but it's rather your soul flourishing regardless of the circumstance you're in. Interestingly, in our day, people are languishing, but culture is really fascinated with the idea of human flourishing right now. There's TED Talks on it that have just come out recently. People are having this conversation. Large corporations are having this com uh, conversation. People want to know, how can we flourish? And again, culture defines it like Aristotle would, although less of an emphasis on virtue, more of an emphasis on material possessions or comfort. What is the flourishing person? From a secular perspective in 2022, they would say you're driving a Tesla, right? Or you have a new house or new spouse or whatever. It's all very externally based and uh, comfort driven. Scripture though defines flourishing in a very provocative countercultural way. It's the heart that's connected, the soul that's rooted in God himself, who is the source of human flourishing who is the source of what our soul longs for. So long answer, but... No, it's that's really fascinating. And I think there's so many follow-up questions that I have, so I'll just start with the, yeah. some of them. <laughs> uh, okay, so the first thing I, I was thinking about, you mentioned how this is something like our, our culture has, they care about and they realize this. Mm -hmm. One thought I had is I know there are different approaches to Christianity, and you mentioned like a Platonic, uh, dualistic type of thing. It says body bad, this world bad, spirit good <laughs> type of thing to, to really dumb it down. But I wonder if you think there are some streams or emphases within some Christian circles that would really have more of that Platonic. And that's why maybe they haven't focused as much on human flourishing as much as even the culture almost is hungry for it because we're in some of those streams. Our focus is only on, hey, this world, it's all going to burn, hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Let's just get out of here and then we'll flourish. So any thoughts oh towards that? Oh my gosh, you're opening up a whole can of worms there, which I think is fascinating. You're right. I think we have platonic view, um, which is also a Gnostic view, right? Gnosticism in the first few centuries, the way that it converted into Christian circles was either aestheticism, right? Body bad, spirit mm -hmm. good, therefore beat your body into subjection, harm your body, or it led to hedonism. But if the body's bad, then it doesn't matter what we do with it. So it's party like it's AD 89. So you see both in the ancient world and, and it became heretical. This is why Galatians was written. So I, you see this conversation in Hebrews and other New Testament passages. And I think we see Gnosticism revived in some in some regard. Now, I think there's some shifts that are happening in, in the, the theological space. It's beginning to now trickle down into church life and ecclesiology, but it's still very much alive and well. And you see this through certain forms of uh, eschatology, um, where, like you said, hey, it's all going to burn anyway, mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter what we do with the environment. 
It doesn't matter how we treat our physical bodies. It really, all of it's irrelevant because it's just our spiritual life. We'll use that term. How's your spiritual life doing? But again, this is a foreign concept to the Bible because we're holistic beings, right? We're, the word holy is whole, right? It also it comes from this word integer, right? Which is a whole number in mathematics. We're to be whole people, body, soul, spirit, nefesh. It's all of us. It's why in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, offer your, your body, your physicality to God as a living sacrifice, because this is mm. holy, right? It's whole. It's acceptable to God. This is your act of worship. Our physical body matters. This physical world matters. So to the degree that we try and bifurcate our physicality from our spirituality, we're really misunderstanding what soul is, nefesh, the entirety of who we are. And we're also losing the beautiful vision that God has for all of creation. And what is that vision? It's the renewal of all things, right? This world and how we treat it, how we treat one another, what we do with our physical bodies, all of it is important. And so this is actually a big theme in my book is I call the, the passage in Second Peter 1 uh, a, a liturgy for the soul. But even towards the end, I drop an idea in, in the conclusion that maybe it's not just a liturgy for the soul, it's an eschatology for the soul. Mm. Because how we shape and form our souls actually has some kind of eternal ramification. Um, so all that to say is yes, <laughs> there, there is some Platonism that I think needs to be deconstructed. And to the degree that we get back to this understanding of, oh, we're called to be whole people and our thought life matters. What we do with our finances matters. The choices that we make matter. Where we go online matters. Mm. The words that we say matter. Worshiping tomorrow morning matters. Reading scripture matters. But all of it, in a sense, is spiritual. All of it is soul-ish, right? We're soul beings. No, it's fascinating. And I love how, as you were describing earlier, a, a whole biblical theology of flourishing, right? So we're looking at the whole Bible starting in Genesis, looking at the whole biblical story going through Revelation. I think that is absolutely uh, fascinating. And I remember the first time I knew this word flourishing, and I guess what comes to mind when I think about it, it just means thriving or whatever. But I remember the first time I heard that word translated into Hungarian, and uh, I understood what it meant. It literally means to have flowers come out. Yes. And then I realized, actually, that's what it means in English too, right? Flower, oh. It comes from French, fleur, yeah. fleur. And I was like, oh, but that it was so powerful to understand that and be like, okay, so like I have a tree in my yard that yeah. flowers and the flowering is like a sign of life and vitality. I also have this plant in my living room. It's a lily. And um, when I first bought it, it had all these beautiful flowers. And they said, if you take care of it, it will periodically flower. And uh, I've only been able to get it to do it once. And so I've been like <laughs> trying to tend this thing. And, it's because we're in to, Colorado. It's hard to <laughs> could be part of it. But, uh, but all these thoughts are just going into this whole idea. And then the other thing that comes to mind, I recently taught on John 15 and this idea of bearing fruit, which I'm sure is really closely tied to what you're talking about with flourishing. And what kind of really came to my mind is Jesus says that abide in me and I in you and your joy will be full. And I think even when you talk about culture at large being interested in the idea of flourishing and wanting to know more, wanting to know the secret to flourishing, like you said, a lot of it, the way it's defined is external things 
And I think particularly here in Colorado, at least in this part of the state, it's really defined not necessarily by possessions, material possessions, but like the sense of fulfillment and quality of life. I don't care if I live in a shack as long as I do something that makes me feel fulfilled, like my life has a purpose or whatever, mm-hmm. or I, I satisfy something in me. And I just remember this quote, and I'm, I'm not remembering it well, so maybe better, but it was a C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about like aiming for the world, and he says you will lose it, but if you aim for, I forget. For heaven. For heaven, you'll yeah. gain the world too. Yeah. But I, I think that one of the things I learned in John 15, just studying it and communicating it to the church, was this idea that that, you know, fruit is not something you can force. Mm-hmm. And I assume the same things with flowers. I can shout at my plant mm-hmm. to make flowers and it's probably going to make even less. It's the result of tending to it. And, and I think that's true in our lives. I guess my point is, if you aim at fulfillment, I don't think you'll actually find it. But if you cultivate this relationship with Jesus, then it's the byproduct that glorifies God, is a blessing to others, and of course to yourself. Absolutely. That's why I call these seven virtues that, that Peter lays out in Second Peter 1, I call them gifts. Sometimes our, our approach to the virtue, our approach to human flourishing has to do with, okay, here's seven steps that you have to perform in order to gain acceptance. Mm. But I start the book, actually in chapter one, by talking about we already are accepted. Mm. And this ties into, again, God's vision for our lives. When, before he even, before we were born, God had a vision for our flourishing. And what's so mind-blowing to me is that is God's vision of us now. Um, this is where I get back into eschatology. It says we are seated with Christ, the book of Ephesians, in the heavenly realms. Romans 8, we are justified. We mm. are glorified. Present tense terms. We often think of it as, oh, yeah, maybe someday that'll right. be me in heaven. But God says, actually, from my perspective, you are flourishing. From my mm. perspective, you are justified. You are glor- You are seated with me in the heavenly realms, which in the ancient world to be seated with a king was the highest honor imaginable. Mm. So human flourishing then is less of how do I strive to become something I'm not and how do I accept who God already says I am. Mm-hmm. So we begin from a place of acceptance, radical acceptance, which then as that begins to trickle down into our soul or captivates our soul, it leads to identity. When we know who we are in Christ, that shapes our understanding of who we are and that's the foundation we build on. And it all flows from intimacy with God, right? John 15, abide in me, which means to be at home with, with, abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And so where I go with it after, you know, laying this theology of flourishing out, we look at 2 Peter 1, where he gives us these seven gifts for the flourishing life. And what's so interesting about 2 Peter 1, I didn't even see this till the last couple of years. He lays these seven things out, and then he says, hey, if you're applying these things, living these things, accepting these gifts, it will keep you from being, he says, ineffective and mm-hmm. unproductive. And I looked into that, and it's actually another word picture, this time of a tree that's withering, that's mm-hmm. dying. <laughs> so he says, do you want to be the tree that's flourishing? Here are these seven gifts. And I'll, I'll just read them to you because sure. I, I think it's uh, germane to our conversation. He says, make every effort, add to your faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And the very first one there is goodness. 
Now, when I'm first researching this, I'm like, that's a broad term. <laughs> What's he talking about? The Greek word is in the Hebrew mind, in the Jewish mind, arete, goodness, was what flowed from God himself. This is like theology 101. Truly God is good, Psalm 73, or Exodus 34. Moses, I'm going to pass by you and show you my name. My goodness will mm -hmm. pass by you. So God's goodness, God's nature, right, are one and the same. So goodness is the source. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where I recently had an interesting conversation with an atheist, Julian Bagani, and uh, we're talking about the source. Where, where do we get this idea of goodness or arete? Where do we get the idea of flourishing? Where do we get the idea of the soul? From a purely secular atheistic perspective, these are just things we essentially generate out of thin air. It's because I want to live a flourishing life, therefore I'm going to invent my own purpose and meaning. But in the Christian worldview, we believe that actually goodness exists. It's not just something we invent to feel better about this meaningless universe. It actually exists. We believe justice exists. We believe that all things will be healed and renewed and, and made up for. All the wrongs, as Dostoevsky put it, uh, will be made up for. So when we see God as the source of goodness, then that becomes exhibit A, step one, the first gift for our flourishing life. It's being with Jesus. It's simple. <laughs> it's loving Jesus. It's spending time in his presence. And from that place of closeness and intimacy with God, our soul can begin to breathe again. And that this ties us back to Genesis 2-7, where it says, God breathed on Adam. He became a living nefesh, living, flourishing, Hungarian, right? Flowers, yeah. beauty. How did that happen? Through the breath of God. And this is one of the most intimate terms in the Bible, breath, ruach is the word, uh, spirit, wind, same word, same concept. To feel someone's breath on your face, you have to be pretty close to them, right? Yeah. To consistently feel someone's breath on your face, like that's a very intimate thing. You're either married or about to be, right? Mm, <laughs> if you yeah. feel someone's breath on your face. What is God telling us? He's telling us that our soul comes alive in the presence of God. It's why Eden was so beautiful. It's why God continually calls us to come back to him, to be with him. It's why Jesus said, if you want rest for your soul, come to me, right? This is the invitation of the word. And this is what Peter meant when he said, add to your faith goodness. It starts with the presence of God. In his presence, your soul can breathe again. Wonderful. Sounds great. I can't wait to read the book and check out more. I know that... Uh you're doing a mini book tour. Yeah. Is this is yeah. tomorrow's your first stop as far as I saw in your post that you made? Yeah. I'm super, super honored to be here at your church. And yeah, this is step one for the next, I don't know, 10 weeks or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Next week we'll be in Oregon, Southern Oregon. And then after that, Portland, going back to the church I, I pastored yeah. there. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And then after that, we'll be England, mm. going to England a couple times the next couple months. So yeah, all our, our speaking events are on our website, which is pursuingfaith.org. Cool. Where can people get your book? Yeah, so wherever books are sold, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. On our website, too, we have a, a lot of links for different outlets for books, wherever you buy them. Yeah, awesome. available right now. 
Sounds good. And finally, I know that you and I were both speaking at the CGN conference. Yes. Um, so I can't wait for What that. are you going to be speaking on at that conference? Yeah. So I believe I'll be giving a talk on uh, doubt and deconstruction mm-hmm. and how we respond to this cultural moment we're in. And then I'll be uh, sharing as well on the new book. Great. Excellent. Cool. Uh, Thank you so much, Dominic, for being on. And I'll post links to a few of those things, including you mentioned that conversation you had with the atheist. That was unbelievable. Yes. uh, Just came out today. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely. We'll have our listeners check that out and I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Make sure to check out the show notes where we'll have links to those resources from Dominic. Also, if you haven't yet done so, please subscribe to the podcast so new episodes can be delivered to your device automatically whenever they come out. And if you'd like to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by leaving us a rating and review. Particularly written reviews are really helpful in boosting the podcast in the algorithms and getting it in front of people who are looking for this kind of content. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with Pastor Tim Chaddick from Reality Ventura on the topic of gospel culture and how to shape culture in organizations, including churches, but also in your family, in your business, whatever it might be. What does it look like to have a gospel culture and how do you shape a culture like that? Until next time, God bless you.